Greetings, Red Fox family, and welcome to Marist Fox Tracks, a podcast produced by Marist Athletics and College Advancement, which spans the decades of Marist College track and field and cross country. My name is Pete Calazo. I'm a proud graduate of the class of 1986, and now I'm in my 32nd year of coaching track and field and cross country here at Marist College. For episode two of Marist Fox Tracks, we are joined by two old friends and true pioneers of our program, both from the class of 1968. John Gogol, a longtime runner and legendary high school coach up in New Hampshire, and John Forbes, who joined us on our inaugural episode of Fox Tracks. John and John, we'll try our, we're gonna try our best to distinguish the two distinguished gentlemen throughout this episode. We're teammates on some of those early cross country teams in the mid 1960s. They also had an amazing shared experience of running the Boston Marathon back in 1966. And they're gonna be telling us our, their wild journey on this episode as well. The timing of this is excellent. We are recording this on Monday, April 18th, Patriots Day in Boston, where 56 years after you guys ran the very same marathon that is being run today. Gentlemen, thank you for taking a few minutes to run down memory lane with us here on Fox Tracks. So, Mr. Gogol, we'll start with you. Uh, since you're new to this Fox Tracks stuff, uh, Mr. Forbes has already done it. So, welcome, John. How are you doing up in New Hampshire today? I'm doing very well, Pete. Thank you for the invitation to join you and my esteemed friend, John Forbes. Uh, I look forward to this conversation. John Forbes, how are you doing down in Maryland? Well, absolutely perfect. I couldn't expect uh, to be on a better day. So Johnny T can tell us about our training table for the Boston Marathon. All right, before we, before we get to, to the Boston story, which I know is a doozy because I remember reading uh, <laughs> Forbes' uh, uh, one of his many emails, all of which I love and enjoy and will reference on this, uh, on this discussion here. Um, so let's go back to, to, the, to the 1960s when you guys were teammates on the, some of the original Marist Cross Country teams. Mm -hmm. um, what were those days like? Like uh, John Forbes, you had sent out uh, an email uh, with some of the old um, training stuff on there and it talked about high park runs i'm because i live in high park i'm very curious about that so i'm really interested in where you guys trained you ran a lot um uh bob lewis was your coach right uh coach lewis right. so so tell 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 us me about those early days of cross country um because i'm interested you know being a an alum and i ran here in the 80s as well so some of the old courses and references I might actually get. So, so yeah, um, fill me in. Like, just let's start with where did you run in Hyde Park? Well, I'll tell you what. Uh, what I like, to, what I prefer to do a bit, Pete, is try to get get us from the very beginning. And I think some of the research I did shows that in 1962, Marist actually had a track team. I didn't realize that it had a cross country team. Didn't have a track team. Right. And then athletic director decided in 1962 to expand the team and, it, and get us into the ECAC conference. So that wasn't just for track. 
uh, cross country. It was also for basketball and I think also uh, the crew team as well. So that was the first movement forward of Marist to, to try to establish itself as, I wouldn't say an athletic powerhouse, but just as, as a, an organization to be recognized. In 1963, the guys did pretty good. They had about uh, five or six dual meets. They didn't really get into any uh, triangular meets and stuff. That would come in, uh, in 1964 with John and I. We established, they decided to spring out a little bit further and they got us into the NAIC. So 64 was when John and I started running. And then that was the beginning of our experience on the cross country team. So it was that fall that we started going. And in yep. that day, it was Paul Marr and um, uh, Kevin McGee and a few of the other fellows, Bobby DiBerardino. And for us, the big training mission under uh, Bob Lewis, who was a, a first year coach, by the way, he had a child on the way. The poor man was getting a PhD and he was driving us back and forth to Van Cortland. So we worked our schedules up, and for the most part, we took advantage of the tracks right along the Hudson River. Uh, up past Tide Park, on that way, we would turn around and come back, and we would do a lot of Waterworks Hill. Later, we would go back on the roads, and we'd go on past uh, Hyde Park, and we'd make it up as far as Vanderbilt, and we'd turn around. As we prepared for the marathon in 1966, we'd extend the running further, uh, for the most part, we would go past uh, Vanderbilt and we would go up to that, um, I think, what was that, the Wells Museum uh, house up there, John? Mill, Mills Nori, I think, uh, John. Um, yeah, I think it was Slotesburg. Stasburg, Stasburg, yeah. Stasburg, right. Yeah, and it, interestingly, the, again, we, we use a lot of these same places. Uh, I started coaching in 1991 and mm -hmm. our first practice every year cross country at the end of August is we go up to the Mills Mansion in Statsburg and we That's do the, th the same the same workout and just to go back to the history you mentioned you guys ran for Bob Lewis he wasn't the first coach the first coach was Joe Sullivan Joe Sullivan whose Absolutely. son Colin is a friend of mine Colin was the assistant athletic director here at Marist for a while he mm -hmm. went on to become the athletic director at Salve Regina in Rhode Island, and now he's an assistant athletic director um, at Brown University. So, so yeah, so that's that's really interesting. That uh, the more things change, the more things stay the same. A lot yeah. of the a lot of the running paths that you guys ran back then, we run now. Um, we 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 stay up at Route Nine quite a bit because um, obviously a lot more, a lot, lot busier now. So. Uh, so, John Gogol, what are your recollections of, of those times in terms of training? Well, I was I was intrigued by the um, in reviewing the uh, information that John sent out this morning, that little piece of paper that showed a five day training schedule. <laughs> in those five days, we ran 71 miles, yep. it was 14 miles on Friday. Saturday, we had a meet of, of five right. mile distance. And then we did seven miles after that. And then Sunday, we did. 18 miles so we were on uh, in that five days we were on schedule to run about 100 miles if we continue the next two days what happened to the old uh you know stress recovery adaptation uh dynamic that we follow today i think um, you know maybe we're too easy on our kids 
Yeah, yeah, I've thought of that too, and I, I want to get in, I want to get into that with you, John Gogol, um, because you've been coaching a long time. I've been coaching a long time. The the evolution of the training, you know, the hard easy method, which actually, when you guys were running at Marist, that really that was started by Bowerman at um, at Oregon, and you guys were before that, and, and you guys survived and thrived. And ran well, but I think it's really interesting. Forbes mentioned Waterworks Hill. Rich Stevens, who you guys probably know, was also mm -hmm. a longtime coach in the 70s and then came back in the 80s and was the coach right before I started in, in 91. He used to do a workout up Waterworks Hill that he called Skull and Crossbones. And it was, oh, yeah. they would do they would just do repeats up and down that hill. And mm -hmm. as a coach here, I've used that hill as well. We call it mid-rise hill now. Mm -hmm. The problem, we don't really do it that much anymore because just like Route 9, the Marist campus has gotten busy. Students have cars and mm -hmm. it's just, it's just, it's too much. And um, so, so we don't, we don't use that. So yeah, talk about that high mileage training back then. You know, again, there were no, cushioned shoes, stuff like that. Were injuries a problem for you guys back then that you can well, recall? Well, I sort of <laughs> noticed that in the uh, clippings, uh, press clippings that John assembled, that there were, it was noted that there were members of the team that were injured and yeah. sort of, I, you know, that may have been the result. Though, I don't know where we got that kind of training schedule from. Obviously, there was no internet. There were very few books. I oh, think yeah. John, I think John and I were just two hyperactive kids that just need to keep moving. But you John know, had. I always, he, I always think of Maris as the home for wayward boys. Uh, <laughs> you know, we were two kids from the, you know, from a city environment that just needed to be active, and there was not a lot of distractions. That's right. And we, and we yeah. both loved running. Yeah. And you would get runners' world. Oh, that was not until, no, that was not until, well, no, I think the late. Runner's Magazine. Yeah, I mean, it, it may have been track and field news. I mean, there, there were running publications back then, but yeah. they were they were certainly, as John Gogol pointed out accurately, the, the, the information on running was, was really lacking. I mean, if you look at the span of my coaching career, too, the there was even in the early 90s there was no internet there were more running publications certainly there was a publication that phil kelly and i used to read all the time called running research news that we right. found very very helpful but there was no workout wednesday flow track and all, all this stuff i mean um coaches and athletes these days are just inundated with information and and it's 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 pretty remarkable but you know, you mentioned you guys being two hyperactive kids who just wanted to run a lot. Let's transition into how how these two hyperactive boys from downstate wound up going to the Boston Marathon. How the heck did that happen? I have no recollection as to. Uh, it wasn't my fault. <laughs> I don't remember even applying or paying whatever the entry fee was. Uh, it, I do remember that we were training. Through the winter, I remember doing at some at some point laps around Donnelly Hall, and then I came down with a slight injury because I think we were going in the same direction all the time. Then we started the direction. <laughs> but I also remember running uh, on the on the on the railroad tracks, which I think was yeah. John's favorite uh, training day. 
but the, the, the ballast, the ballast was so incredibly coarse and hard that you could only run on the cross ties. And the cross ties were like 21 inches apart. And that never fit either my walking or running stride. So it was just, it was horrible. It was a beautiful view, but uh, in terms of footing, it was just horrendous. So we just, I don't think we just kept moving. It prepared us for Heartbreak Hill. We have to give uh, Coach Krebs at Stepanak a little plus on that because uh, when we decided to go to Boston, it was like the next step for us. Uh, we needed a, a ride from Poughkeepsie to Boston, and then the crew team was out there, and both John and I had friends on the crew team. I had my freshman year roommate, Andy Droz, and Johnny had uh, Richie Fleming, well, right? Well, John, John, before you get there, first <laughs> of all, I had I left Friday from Long Island, hitched up to your house, yeah. and probably your mother baked one of those wonderful apple pies. The poison. And then, we, and then that was Friday morning, and then Friday afternoon, you know, we went up to Marist. We hitched. We hitched up to Marist. Right. So, right. So then we hooked up with the the, the crew, crew team. team. Holy leaving Cross. <laughs> morning for Springfield. Saturday morning. You know, we yeah. went with the crew team. Okay, so you can take it from there. Well, that's where. That's where uh, uh, O'Donnell, Danny O'Donnell, was on a two-mile relay for Stepanak. So we stayed with him the first night. I don't know if we slept on the floor or what. I, you know. He, we just showed up and says, hey, Danny, help us out. I just find it remarkable. I always find it remarkable the how the world has changed. Uh, a good friend of mine, Eric Gross, after he graduated college, he's, he's a bit younger than you guys, and he, uh -huh. he's, in, he's in his mid-60s, but he went out and he hitchhiked up and down the Pacific Coast. So the, the concept of hitchhiking today? is so yeah. today, right? Think about that. I think most people listening to this podcast would be like they hitched they hitched from where to where and i know that hitchhiking kind of comes back into this boston marathon story but i just had to stop there to to just enlighten the younger listeners which is pretty much everybody um that you know yeah hitchhiking was a thing and it was generally pretty safe right it was yeah. safe but let me let me add a little bit of color to that we used to have competitions on the weekend <laughs> during the fall and the spring seeing you know in in teams of two see who could hitch up to albany to a certain spot and then hitch back to marist and see who could do it the fastest that's I mean, funny that's how, that's how little you know you know in terms of what was available for distractions i mean there was if, if i were your coach back then and i found out about that my now putting my coaching hat on i'd be like Come on, man! You got that much time. You should be running more. You know, that's that's, exactly. that's, you, you, have time, you have time to hitch to Albany and back. That's an extra five mile run. Let's go. Maybe that, maybe that was the off season. Yeah. So, all right. So, so Forbes, you're you're I I'm I'm tracking your timeline. So you guys hitched up to Poughkeepsie. You take you you're on with the crew team to somewhere in central Massachusetts, Springfield, 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 Springfield Mass. Springfield, yeah. Mass. Okay. So, how do you get from Springfield, Mass? to Boston, Mass. Now, Springfield's closer to Boston than Poughkeepsie is, but it's still a good hour away, at least, right? Well, I mean, we have a thumb, right? <laughs> there you go. <laughs> no, but then then we hitched a ride. After the after right. the crew meet, we hitched a ride with the Holy Cross team to Back, Worcester. Holy, Holy Cross. 
Right. And then at, at Holy Cross, we had Danny O'Donnell from the Stepanak to my relay team. He put us up, but I don't yeah. know if he really put us up. You know, we, he knew we were coming, except they didn't have any place for us. So I think we slept on the floor of one of the dorm rooms. And then the next day it was up and out the door and uh, we were down to Boston College. And then we had a friend, uh, another friend on the two mile relay team. His name was Tommy Glenn. And uh, we contacted him, but we also had our freshman year um, uh, captain, Paul Mark, who was going to law school there. And they found a place for us in the front. It was a gatehouse, Johnny, right? Right, some of my visitor's dorm, I guess, that I remember. Yeah. I think it was a nice facility. And I yeah, mean, it was preparation for the military because it's all army bunk beds now. <laughs> <laughs> that room and we were able to get two at the end <laughs> so so you got there that so now are you there the race is on, the race is on monday so no now, no, are you, no the race, i thought the race, the race was on monday, monday. the race is on tuesday because right. until 1969 the boston marathon was held on, on the, the patriots day which was always april 19th wow i didn't know that that, that's actually, that. wow okay so the race was on tuesday that's really right. fascinating because for those listeners that don't know the boston marathon is always held on patriots day which now in modern times is always the third monday of april which is Correct. the day the day we're recording right. this now april 18th right. right so um so but but the actual patriots day is would you say uh john april 19th april Yes. So okay, in 1966, so, so you, it was Tuesday. Tuesday. Okay. So so now you're at this. So this is Monday night now. I'm just trying to get this timeline right. So now you're you're on the on the verge of running the marathon, right? And you're there. We have a rest oh, yeah. day Monday, and I do okay. remember going out. And we, uh, John and I, have John recently talked about our nutrition. I remember <laughs> buying bologna and nutriment. And Nutriment was a liquid oh, form of the modern uh, energy bars. John remembers <laughs> Carnation Instant Breakfast, but I can't imagine. I think you needed milk with that, John. Well, we had to, but that's when we found that little deli down the street. That was it. And and John, <laughs> and I even wonder how much money we had in our pocket. John thinks we had maybe ten dollars each when we started out. So so in modern times here the pre-race pasta dinner is a big thing right so this 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 doesn't yeah this sounds this sounds a little bit more prehistoric than your basic pre-race pasta dinner okay so so get us to the starting line now you're in hopkinton what was that like what was the weather like that day okay well let's go back john let's go back um a couple of weeks um Probably in the early part of April, we decided to do a long run up to that state park in Statsburg, nine mile round trip. The day before, John and I gave blood, donated blood. Oh, Finney. <laughs> so I, well, I don't know why, but anyway, we, we didn't, I think we may have, we got to the state park and we were on our way back and both of us were obviously oxygen uh, deficient, having given blood and lost, I don't know, 10% of our our total volume of which a good part of it was hemoglobin, which is responsible for <laughs> oxygen transport. So we had a hitch, we had a hitch back to school. So, and I don't remember there being any snow on the ground. So this had to be early April. So yeah. two, two to three weeks later, we were still uh, dealing with that uh, recovery. I mean, it says it takes one to two months to restore that hemoglobin. 
or red blood cells. So we were not only calorie deficient, we were oxygen deficient when we, when we ran that race. Oh, wow. we did it for Finney. And the nice thing about giving blood at, at Vassar Brothers is they gave you a shot of whiskey, which of <laughs> course was appreciated. Okay. But I don't know if they do that anymore. Uh, unlikely. Um, okay. okay, so the guy that yeah. came up with the idea about the 100 hour marathon. He was uh, a fellow that had hemophilia, but he was like a genius. He was like the mad scientist type. He was always reading stuff. And every time he fell, there'd be a call to the dorm and we get all the guys together and we all go down and give blood because he, he was always in need of a constant refill, so to speak. Yeah. yeah. But he was so, quite a guy. What was, so, the, uh, what was the weather like on, on, on Marathon Day in 1966? It wasn't bad. I remember it being, yeah, nice. It cold. Okay. Yeah. Well, well, it was by, sunny. By 12 o'clock, it warmed up. Yeah. Yeah. So we took, so from BC, we took the tea to the Prudential Center. Mm-hmm. We got our we got our bib or wasn't even a, it's a piece of cardboard I still have it not a cardboard a piece of heavy it's duty big. paper yeah yeah and um and then we took a bus to the Hopkinton uh, high school gym everybody mm-hmm. at that point I think there were only about five hundred uh, athletes everybody was uh, allowed into the gym they gave you sort of a cursory physical exam <laughs> um, and then we walked down to the starting line and. <laughs> we did our thing and here they are wow the well, actual well, shoes oh. me- member member forbes were on audio here but yeah those are just those are blue um what are they blue adidas blue adidas with and, no cushioning with with no cushioning and, and certainly um, no flexibility as you can see yeah. and um yeah you know looks like looks like you could still wear them i'm not sure that would be smart yeah. but um well, so I to donate them to you coach so so what was the what was the the race like the boston marathon is you know everybody knows about heartbreak hill but what a lot of people that have not run boston don't know is that the first half first 13 miles the first half oh, of it not. is essentially downhill right mm-hmm. flat and downhill so what what was it like was it a, you know now the ma- the modern boston marathon is a big it's a 26 mile party because you know everybody's lying in the streets and stuff like that were there a lot of spectators when you guys ran yeah i would say the word john what do you think yeah. i uh, remember I, I remember them passing out oranges and licorice which seemed awfully odd unusual i don't yeah. think there were any anybody passing out water so mm-hmm. not only were we calorie and oxygen deficient, we were probably dehydrated too, John. So the well, fact that you were able to run 308 is just incredible. I think if you were trained properly, I think you would have won the race. I, really- was, try- I was trying to find a bathroom, John. <laughs> <laughs> when I did, it didn't make any difference because that dehydration was a killer. I mean, so, it was a terrible so, thing. So Forbes ran 308, which yes. is about seven a little bit more than seven minutes a mile seven minutes a mile is roughly 303 so that's that's a really really good time for us we're looking to do a couple of young guys who basically hitchhiked and um you know didn't really have great nutrition great hydration so forbes what was it what was what tell me about heartbreak hill tell me about what was it like when you started going up heartbreak hill which again is really the last of a series of four hills in newton so what was what was it like? Did you guys hit the wall? Very, very well named. Heartbreak yep. Hill, very well named. 
And I think Johnny and I both had the same terrifying experience. There was a guy in a bus pulled alongside of me. It looked like I was ready to croak, I guess, going up the hill. He opens the door and he says, hey, kid, you want a lift? It's <laughs> like, screw you. No way. I didn't come all this way to quit. And I think that's the same uh, feeling most of the runners had. But once you crested the hill, you saw Boston below you, and it was almost a downhill shot. But that was deceptive because you still had five more miles to go. And that was a, a bit of a killer, too. Yeah, you know, what was, your, was, what was your experience of, <clears throat> of that first Boston? What, what do you remember about really the whole race, but the hills and the finish and stuff like that? Uh, not, not much, for one thing. You know, we didn't know about the course. You know, everybody yeah. knows about the course now. But we didn't know anything. We just knew it was 26 miles. You know, it was going from Hopkinton to Boston. So it was just, you just, uh, whatever the uh, terrain threw at you, you just yeah. kept moving. I do remember also, I had, I had bought a pair of Adidas Romas from Carlson's in New York City mm -hmm. and, and, and taped my socks because I was afraid that the socks were going to, you know, fall down and give me blisters. And little did I know that my ankle was swelling and the, and the tape and the tape was, uh, you know, digging in. So I remember stopping and trying to rip the, the, uh, the tape off my socks and that same probably ambulance stopping by. <laughs> That's right. It's a small, it was a small bus. And I remember the door opening. Right. And asked me if I, I, I don't understand why John, who finished 86, they would have an, you know, an ambulance so-called that far along, you know, up, up the, uh, uh, at the top runners asking if he needed a ride into Boston. I guess that's what they were doing. Now, was John... clear, off, clear off the course for the uh, work day the next day. <laughs> but um, again, I remember passing out licorice and, um, and oranges and not really much about the course itself. I do remember seeing Roberta Gibb come yeah. out onto the course soon after the start. Uh, I do remember after the race, John and I were... Uh, were treated to that uh, famous beef stew in the Prudential Center in the cafeteria. Mm -hmm. I remember Jock Semple, not, not Jock Semple, but people talking about the audacity of Roberta Gibb, you know, running Absolutely. the race. And she, even though John thinks that uh, we both uh, beat her, only John Forbes beat her. I was behind. <laughs> I'll he get ran, out of here. He ran 321, I ran 334. Johnny, so, she never finished. Yeah, she now, did. Yes, now, did. now, John Gogol, we'll get to this in, 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 a, in a few minutes, but you, as you grew into adulthood, as, along with being a noteworthy coach up in New Hampshire, you actually ran Boston again, <laughs> and you ran some really, really fast marathons. So we'll get to that in a second, but I want to know how you guys got back to Poughkeepsie. Well, first off, <laughs> how, how, about, how about this? How about this? Again, it's 56 years later, but it's Tuesday. Didn't you guys have classes? I mean, it's not Patriots Day in Poughkeepsie. What the heck? Jesus, Pete, let's not talk about that. <laughs> all right, all right. I didn't, get, I didn't get back to class until Thursday, and by then I was on well on my way to failing out. <laughs> okay. Well, so but but let's let's um, how did how did you get back? Because I do remember Forbes one of your one of your emails about um somehow you got to Albany and slept in a train station or something. Am I remembering this stuff, right? I'll, I'll, and then I'll take, I'll take this Pete. All right. Go ahead. Uh, Google. Yeah, please. Um, 
Well, first of all, the uh, the Boston Herald did a late late edition uh, on Tuesday and um, listed the top 100 finishers, and and Mr. Forbes' name was there. Awesome. And we soon left. No. Uh, we got on a we got on a bus. Bus. Who knows where? <laughs> North Station, South Station. A bus to uh, the Albany train station. Missed the last train to Poughkeepsie slept in the station and and I just remember just it felt like concrete was just coursing through my veins I was just <laughs> we slept, and we slept on the you know the hard benches there got on the train the first train to Poughkeepsie between John and I all we had was enough for one fare we had a dollar 75 the conductor after hearing our sad tale said I'll 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 bill you um uh, and uh so anyway we got into poughkeepsie early that morning um uh and i remember walking up to the campus you know and uh so what an adventure only 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 you know the folly of youth i mean only young people could do silly things like that well that's what paul Rin remembered he said when his his ship was being blown up he says i thought of forbes and goggle he says what would they do they were crazy and that's what Paul did. He stayed on board the ship instead of abandoning the ship, and he brought it to port. It was amazing. Yeah, so, it was amazing. What, was that, what was that walk like back from, from the train station? I, oh, I would imagine you guys were pretty sore. Agony. It's not that far, but that must, have, that must have felt like a marathon in itself. Oh, well, it was just agony because we all had the blood blisters on the bottom of our feet. But when we came on the campus, some guys were actually going to class, and a couple of them actually clapped for us. I don't know how the hell they found out about uh, the marathon and our finish, but uh, it was really pretty supportive when we got back. Yeah, and of no, course, it's a great memory. It's a great, it's a great memory. Um, it is. And um, it's got to be kind of cool for you guys to see the Boston Marathon still running today. Right. And, and again, John Gogol, talk a little bit about your post-collegiate running when you you know you got pretty fast you ran ran some marathons in the in the 230s and 240s what was it like going back to boston as a mature adult who trained properly and stuff like that what was what was that like did did you recall your time from 66 uh probably not you know no. uh only the fact that you that you've resurrected this story has it you know sort of uh, have i sort of reflected on it uh i just you know i've i've always enjoyed running i think uh, mr forbes uh instilled a love in the sport for me and um and i tied it in with uh, when i got out of the military um you know I, I needed to get a job and i decided that i really wanted to look into coaching but you know there's no money in coaching high school cross country track and field so i had to get a so i got a teaching job and um you know i've always um i've always been involved in coaching i still am and uh just continued running um for the love of it and um and just you know just uh as you know anytime that you have any success you, you want to replicate that feeling so it just meant that you trained harder and everybody was doing in the in the 70s and 80s were doing high mileage uh, marathoning was very very big after frank shorter you know won the 72 olympic marathon and and all in montreal so i just went with the flow so to speak and uh, and the, and the training paid off 
Yep. No, that's that's great. What, what speak to a little bit the the evolution of the sport in your even as a runner and as as a coach. How is it? How has it stayed the same, and how has it changed? How would you how would you address that? Um, I remember being somewhat resentful at all the people, all the recreational runners that were sort of the, taking over my sport. <laughs> 70s and 80s you know i like the anonymity and this the small uh, uh the collegiality of a small group of people and then everybody was sort of doing it uh, uh i i don't know training has become very sophisticated um and 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 running is a very simple sport i mean all you have to do is just follow the basic you know basic uh, training principles um and you can be successful you know if you have a little bit of talent um, I, I don't know. I could probably spend hours talking about training and, and stuff like that. So just suffice it to say that, uh, right now I've come to realize after many years of coaching that, uh, it's really more about, uh, um, uh, impressing upon the kids that they, the belief in themselves that they can do it, that there are really no limits. There are many roads that lead to Rome. So there's many training schedules that you can um, inflict upon kids but uh, you know it's pretty basic and if kids can believe that they can be successful and they enjoy what they're doing you know they'll do well thank you have you adapted your training you, you mentioned the the evolution of the sport very interesting like you said we could talk we could talk for a long time about that about how back in the 70s and 80s when you were running fast times it was about fast times now it's really about participation it's a, it's a different it's a, it's a it's a different mindset yes there's still men and women that are aiming for fast times but the vast majority of people in the marathon or other races are it's about you know hitting bucket list goals and and stuff like that but in terms of your coaching do you coach your athletes differently now i'm a, i'm asking as a fellow coach out of really out of curiosity how that how that process has evolved for you as well um i try to keep it simple mm -hmm. um try to keep um you know inject uh, a bit of variety um i you know i joke around with the kids uh but you know we're serious uh, yep. Um, again, I don't know how to answer that question without, you know, getting into too much uh, into the weeds and stuff, but uh, yep. you just got to put in, you know, you got to put in a, an adequate amount of mileage. You have to consider the individuality of kids and you try to keep them engaged in the sport. There's certainly a lot of distractions. There weren't very many distractions when John and I were in school. You know, we, we found something we loved and enjoyed and, and we did it. Uh, nowadays, there's any number of different distractions that kids have yeah so. i agree um I, I can certainly relate to that now of uh, mr forbes the one of the last times we've talked in recent months you were mentioning something about a 5k are you still are you still out there training and trying to get 5ks in and stuff like that what what has your running been like post collegiately yeah i i pretty much run one race a year and that's uh the Celtic Cantor 5k and that's in March I just finished the last one the guy that beat me was a youngster at 70 and uh, uh I ended up coming in second 
of course, the other guys were all dead. So, but there's one thing I think you guys are hitting on. It's important about running and, uh, and part of my story as well is it's good for your health. You got to keep moving. It's a, ma it's a matter of uh, physical and mental discipline. I mean, we were out there running uh, up to Slotesburg. You kind of turn your, your, your brain, <laughs> brain off in a way and you just went in, into a flow. And it's the same thing, I think, uh, in current life. You need to be able to break away from the things that are driving you nuts through the day and have a little time for yourself just to hit, either hit the trail or hit the gym or do something. And uh, of the friends I know that have made it as far as John and I have, I think the runners and the athletes are the ones that did the best. So I would kind of look at that as something uh, that people learn younger as a younger person and they should carry it through until they become older. It just gives you more ability to participate in society rather than be, you know, um, kind of laid up and stuff like that. Yeah. But it's I, been fun. Yep. I, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off, John. The, the thing that you guys probably didn't have in the sixties was that long vision of the mm -hmm. fact that this is a lifetime sport. And right. that's through no fault of your own or Bob Lewis or anything like that because running wasn't mainstream. It was a fringe right. activity. Uh, that first Boston Marathon that you did, again, there were a couple hundred people, not 30,000 like there is mm -hmm. today. So we know now that running is a lifetime sport and that it enhances our well being. Mm -hmm. But back then, you really didn't know that. But you're mm -hmm. lucky that you were able to plant those seeds back in the in the mid 1960s, and here you are still today, healthy and running mm -hmm. and moving to to a certain extent. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, well, it, and that's what I think it's all about. It's uh, I remember watching this uh, the loneliness of the long distance runner it goes way back in the 60s. I, I don't I don't know if you remember it, Johnny. Yeah, the book just. Yeah. yeah, fascinating. And, and it's kind of really, in a way, that's what the running thing's probably been about. It's more mental and disciplinary than it is anything else. You know? And then you just go with it and you find good people to hang out with. And uh, that's what makes running even more fun. You know, I worked in Buffalo. I had uh, fell in with a group that was sponsored by a bar and I had a great time with those fellows. We ran the boss, the Skyline Marathon and a few other things up there along Niagara, which is a nice race too. But yep. Now, uh, John Gogol, you're still, um, you're not running the high mileage that you did back in the 70s and, and 70s and 80s, but you still have a pretty good workout routine that you told us about a few weeks ago, right? What you do, you have a, a lot of property out there in um, New Hampshire. What exactly do you do? Uh, refresh my memory on that. You do like an I, hour loop or something? Um, I, have, I have a lot of trails in my woods uh, and I have a specific 800 meter and 1200 meter loop that I, that I do. And um, I sort of mix a little bit of walking and running. And then I have a chin, chinning bar near somewhere. And every time I pass through the finish a, a lap, I, I do my 20 pull-ups and, and then Ooh. move on. Walking, and I have uh, I um, I have to put up eight cords of wood a year for for <laughs> eating, for cooking, and for sugaring. So that keeps me uh, 
in good shape. I enjoy doing that. I enjoy working in the woods. Uh, I just enjoy being active, just like uh, when I was uh, when I was at Marist. Yeah, that, that's great. And John Forbes, you that five k you do every year. Do you train for it? What's what's your activity level? Do you walk, run? What what do you do through throughout? Not the, very uh, much. I hit the gym most of the time. Um, that's great. And then uh, I usually do uh, the elliptical treadmills. I like just setting the uh, the treadmill on a particular uh, pace that I want to hit, then hang on for dear life. <laughs> yep. No, that 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 sounds great. Um, well, we're gonna we're gonna um, we're gonna uh, start wrapping this up now. Um, you know, as the old Almond Brothers song goes, the road goes on forever, and uh, it's kind of cool that you guys. It's kind of nice running through memory lane here, uh, hearing your stories from the 60s and the fact that you guys are still really active. So I just want to thank you both for taking time out to do this and especially taking the time to continue to be supportive of our current team at Marist. Um, we've, the past couple of years with COVID, derailed everybody, everybody, everything, right? Um, it certainly derailed uh, us athletically. Again, it's not unique to it's not unique to us, but we're back running in our outdoor track season. It's gone well for our men and women. We had a real good winter season. We have a few more weeks to go as we record this. But you guys have been really supportive with emails and reaching out. And um, I just want to thank you both. So uh, thanks, thanks for joining us, and um, you know we're gonna we're gonna wrap it up. Any any parting words before I uh, I, I call it quits here? Well, I'd like to uh, I'd like to uh, uh, acknowledge that John Forbes has been an integral part of my of my life, and uh, he's a he's a good good person, a great friend. And uh, Pete, I'd like to uh, thank you for all that you do for our sport and for the college and and for uh, our young people. It's important. Thank you, Mr. Forbes. Well, I mean, how can I top Johnny Gogol? Uh, he was with me when we were running through the jungles and, uh, and in Marist and everywhere else. And Pete, I'd like to thank you very much, as John said, for your uh, continuation. You built this team. You've invested these years and these guys are really, and girls, by the way, are really doing well. I was really proud to see you guys made the Olympic trials several times. I mean, that's quite an accomplishment for any school. Yep. No, and we, we, we appreciate that. And we appreciate that, that both of you guys and all of our alums that uh, hopefully a lot of them are listening, continue to follow and, mm -hmm. and, and text and, and post on social media and stuff like that. So, so we're going to wrap this up and we hope you enjoyed this episode of Maris Fox Tracks. Um, we're going to continue with more episodes. And for more information or to share suggestions for podcasts, you can reach out to myself in athletics or Joan Gambeski, who's a great friend of you guys and this program and everything. Uh, Joan's in college advancement, and you can reach her or us at foxtracks at marist.edu. That's F O X. T-R-A-C-K-S at marist.edu. As always, you can follow our program and all of our awesome athletic teams at goredfoxes.com. 
thank you for listening and we'll catch you next time on marist fox tracks